say hi. Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Listening to the Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland only on LA Talk Radio. Hey there, welcome to the Dr. Nina Show here on LA Talk Radio. I am your host, Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, and I am here to help you stop counting calories, carbs, and fat grams so you can just get to a healthy weight naturally and get on with your life. That's what it's all about. I want you to wake up and think about your day, not your diet. Uh, and this is, by the way, a pre-recorded show. So if you wanted to call in today, uh, hit me up next week when I will be back in the studio. I'm actually recording this on Sunday. I'm here in the studio with, uh, with someone who wants to say hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi. That is my daughter. She's 11. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay. She was very much wanting to do that, so that gave her a big thrill. Okay, um, so today I am going to do part two of my audio version of my chapter on food addiction in my recent book, Beyond the Primal Addiction, which I co-edited with Dr. Salman Akhtar, who is a rock star among psychoanalysts, and I'm so honored that I was able to do a book with him. So uh, previously, I did a recording of part one of the audiobook recording of this chapter, and today I'm going to do part two. So in part one, I discussed the concept of food addiction. Uh, I went over the various ways that food and specifically eating, whether binge eating, stress eating, or any kind of emotional eating, expresses unconscious or hidden conflicts and emotions, such as, um, uh, one, as a means of self-soothing, two, as a way of using the body to express conflicts and feelings, and three, as a way of expressing wishes and fears about relationships. So I have one more illustration of that about someone who um, used food to express conflict about relationship. And uh, so let me, let me just start there. So Jane, who was in her mid-20s when she was working with me, had grown up in a chaotic household dominated by a father who was prone to violent alcoholic rages and a mother who alternated verbal and physical hostility with expressions of concern. Um, in, in my other book, Food for Thought, I wrote extensively about Jane, and I wrote how she would say things, the mother would uh, hit her, and then and then say things like, oh, and rub, like sort of rub her and give her a back rub and say, oh, I got you really good, didn't I? What, what do you need? So she gave her very different, um, uh, very, com- it was very complicated, <laughs> bewildering reactions to the kind of aggression that she was given. So I uh, In that book, I wrote a lot about Jane, who was overweight as a child and developed anorexia in her teens. And she came to treatment with me when she was in um, her 20s, and she lived a 1,000 miles away from her family. Shortly after being fired from a job where she felt, quote, like we were family, she started eating relentlessly. Losing the job facilitated an intense hunger for connection with other people. She was starving for something relational, but she turned to food instead of to people. 
She ate so much food that when she recounted the details of her binges, I felt physically sick. My reaction probably reveals her unconscious wish to be intrusive and sadistic with me to let her know to let me know what she felt as well as to convey the sort of horror of what she went through as a child and Jane reported that her binges were made up of foods she did not actually like she was addicted to peanut butter as she put it and she mused she actually hated peanut butter even though it was her mother's favorite food she often mentioned the calorie counts of various cookies that she would binge on, which were always 135 calories. Or she would bemoan the 135 grams of fat she ate one day. She thought maybe she would not stop binging until she gained 135 pounds. Not coincidentally, this was the exact weight of her mother. By gaining 135 pounds, she was recreating her mother in the ultimate merger with her mother symbolized as a second skin of fat. This was Jane's victory over the possibility of separation from her mother. Losing weight was akin to losing that maternal bond. And this was so terrifying to Jane that she could not stop eating because to stop eating and lose weight meant losing that bond, that psychological bond to her mother. So she used food as a way of experiencing fusion with her mother, almost in a reverse pregnancy. Instead of her mother carrying Jane in her body in preparation for birth, Jane symbolically carried her mother in, in her body, on her body, and never wanted to give her up. So um, eating was a way that she could express her hunger for a relationship and her fear. And she was unconsciously attempting to find in food what she could not find in her mother, who would not bond with her, who would not be consistent and, and relate to her. Uh, only by working through the painful relationship of the past and identifying how she'd identified with her mother and reenacted the childhood trauma did she begin to heal those wounds of the past. So another reason why people um, binge eat, stress eat, emotionally eat, is to express fear of objectification. Many people who struggle with their weight, not all, all of these are, you know, there's no one size fits all, so to speak, solution or understanding for, for everyone. But for some people, uh, there is a conscious desire to lose weight and an unconscious fear of being thinner or smaller. Um, in a seminal paper written in 1950, uh, Baikowski describes the dream of a patient who had lost considerable amount of weight in treatment during treatment. In the dream, she acted aggressively towards a man when before her manner towards him had always been very maternal. And he found that this was a common theme in his patients. And as he put it, their adipose cushion now, there's a way to put overweight, adipose cushion. Uh, but that's him. That's not me. I'm just reporting what he said. Um, their adipose uh, cushion served as a protection against aggression. And uh, uh, this had a double meaning of protection. So it helped protect the patient from her own 
exhibitionism, as he put it, wanting to show off, wanting to be seen, wanting to put on a cute outfit and be like, hey, here I am, um, which also scared her. So losing weight can put people in touch with aggressive thoughts, feelings, and impulses. It can be, it can put you in touch with a wish to be seen, which can be simultaneously exciting. Ooh, I want to wear that cute sundress over summer and, and fear. Ooh, then people will look at me. So it, it can be too threatening to bear that conflict. Um, there are other writers who discuss many reasons why people resist losing weight. One writer, Rubin, in 1973, said thinness symbolically represents dislodgement from resignation, surrender of illusion, destruction of magic, and confrontation with unrealistic expectations. It represents removal of a major cornerstone supporting uh, a, a, an intricate defense system. Okay, here, here's my translation. Here's my translation of that. Being thin is scary. Being thin is scary for some people. And what he's talking about, confrontation with unrealistic expectation, surrender of illusion, that's the illusion that by losing weight, you change your life. By losing weight, and this is something I talk about a lot because so many people uh, bring this up. By losing weight, you're going to lose the parts of yourself that you don't like. Uh, or you're going to gain some kind of um, personality or life that you don't have. And that is a marvelous illusion. I mean, uh, you know, as I said before, what a superpower. You lose weight and you are suddenly, uh, whereas you were maybe um, isolating in your, in your house, suddenly you're a social butterfly. If you were shy, you're outgoing. You're confident. You feel totally different. You're a different person, whereas you're thin, you just have a few friends. I mean, if, you're, if you're overweight, you have a, a few friends. If you, if you lose weight and become thin, suddenly you're surrounded by people who, who love you. <laughs> you have more friends. You're, it's amazing. If you like a guy and he doesn't see to see you if you lose weight he's gonna he's gonna see you and he's gonna want you um or 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 if if a, a woman doesn't like you because she doesn't like your man bod or whatever hey all you have to do is get a six-pack lose weight and boom she's gonna be so into you this is the illusion that by losing weight we control how others see us and how they behave towards us it's a difficult illusion to give up. Um, so here is my example of a patient that I saw. Willow was in her mid 20s, she was overweight, and she had what she called the pretty face syndrome. Her grandmother would tell her that she had such a pretty face, and if she would only lose weight, men would line up around the block to take her out. Now, Willow knew that some men preferred curvy, voluptuous, plus size women. And it was actually possible for her to date at the size that she was, but she did not. Willow felt, as she put it, quote, like the cookie monster, unquote, from Sesame Street, and regularly ate entire boxes of cookies at one time. She would go into this food coma, as she would put it. Willow had grown up watching her mother submit to her stepfather on every aspect of their daily life. Her stepfather decided what show to watch on television, where to visit on vacation, and what to have for dinner. 
Her mother was powerless to make even the most basic household decisions, and she had to justify all her purchases, even the type of dishwashing detergent she bought, to her husband. So Willow developed the idea that marriage meant being subsumed by the needs and wishes of the other person. Marriage meant, or connection really, meant giving up yourself to make someone else happy. As long as Willow remained heavy, her weight protected her from the kind of male attention that might lead to dating in her mind. She feared losing herself in a relationship and becoming just a girlfriend, just a wife, and abdicating, just totally giving up her sense of self. And as Willow processed this fear and treatment, she began to date for the first time in her life. And when her size no longer served the purpose of protecting her from this conflict about relationships, she was able to stop binging on cookies and she naturally lost weight. Now keep in mind, if we had focused on cookies, well, the next time you want to eat a cookie or an entire box of cookies, this is what you do. You know, uh, go on a walk, take a bubble bath, brush your teeth, tell yourself to wait three minutes. All of the strategies that deal with the behavior would only be temporary strategies and ultimately it would have been a willpower, white knuckle kind of experience for her because it wasn't really about cookies. Cookies were not the problem. Cookies were the solution to the problem. The problem was her fear and anxiety about relationships. So she would get lonely, think, oh, maybe it would be okay to date someone, and that would freak her out, and then she'd be like, oh, cookies, what can I have? So consciously, she, she wasn't aware of, of her conflict about relationships. She wasn't aware that that uh, example of her mother and stepfather had so, so intensely created a fear and expectation of what a relationship would be like her. She wasn't aware of it. I mean, she knew that she didn't like how her mother was with her stepdad. She knew that. She was not a fan of her stepdad and how controlling he was, but she did not realize how much that had affected her own fears about relationships. Another example. Many years ago, I treated Daisy, a 13-year-old girl who was morbidly obese. Now, her her parents worried about Daisy because she had few friends and never wanted to go out on the weekends. She wanted to stay home and eat, watch TV, read, and she would order pizza delivery and then would eat the whole pizza by herself. And she seemed very unperturbed by her lack of social interaction. She told me she did not enjoy the activities that typical teenagers often enjoy. She preferred her own company to those of, that of others. So as a result, her primary relationship was to food instead of to people. And one day she told me, and this kind of gives me chills, even I swear I'm getting chills as I'm about to tell you what she told me. I mean, it was so poignant. She told me bad things don't happen to fat girls. She believed that all victims of rape and murder and bad things were skinny and attractive, never fat, and thus her size kept her safe, protecting her from the possibility of victimization. Additionally, she shared that she did not know who she should be if she were thin, fearing that any weight loss 
would make her less huggable, as she put it. So her identity and perception of herself as huggable, which to her meant lovable, were tied to her size. Losing weight was akin to losing her lovability and her identity. Losing weight was like putting herself in danger of being victimized also. So these two ideas, which were hidden until she started talking about it, these were, were hidden from her and yet had everything to do with why she refused to lose weight. Notably, much later, she shared fantasies of disemboweling her father, cutting off his penis, leaving him to die a horrible, painful death, leaving me to wonder about unconscious guilt as a motivation for fearing that bad things would happen to her. Now, she couldn't articulate or really even consciously register this guilt, so I had the idea that she feared all of her aggressive, violent fantasies would be met by punishment from some threat outside her house. That's why she would be a victim. That's why something bad would happen to her. So it was, it was very complicated and, and interesting. So people who have painful experiences with intimacy, whether they get negative messages about closeness or if they were actually abused, often fear being objectified and treated as a body or a thing rather than as a person. And for people who were sexually abused or molested as children, the danger of being objectified is much more intense. So their weight often serves as a shield to protect them from the perceived dangers of human connection and relationship, which they have learned to mistrust. When children are mistreated in their childhood, being small can be associated with powerlessness. Being physically big, taking up space, being a person of size can give the illusion of powery, power and mastery. Powery, I just made up a word by fusing them together. Gives the illusion of power and mastery over, over the, 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 the things that can happen in life. Okay, another reason people turn to food is it's a way of filling a void. Many binge eating disorder patients describe a feeling of emptiness within their bodies, a chasm of nothingness, a hunger that no amount of food can fill. One patient described it to me as a black hole of oppressive nothingness, inescapable and vast. Uh, uh, various writers have described the common experience of a black hole in eating disorder patients. Latzer and Gerzy in 2000 described certain binge eating people who have little frustration tolerance and find it, quote, hard to be in a position of lack of holes. They have to fill all the holes in their lives. They have to fill all the holes with food. So they're talking about how the experience of emptiness is as terrifying as a black hole and so unbearable that people turn to food and eat to fill their bodies Fill their bodies full, symbolically staving off that unbearable emptiness. The notion of a black hole as a way of describing someone's psychological conflict was first used by Bion in 1970 to describe the experience of infants prematurely separated from their parents. Um, in 1972, Francis Tustin introduced the idea of a black hole as a psychological void. Grotstein in 1990 writes that the black hole, quote, 
represents the place where the mother used to be. And by mother, we really mean parent or, or primary caregiver. <clears throat> um, re- represents the place where the mother used to be, the place from which she has been prematurely ripped away, unquote. So people who have suffered severe maternal deprivation or abandonment are vulnerable to this state, which goes beyond merely feeling empty. And instead, it's like this sense of not just empty, but being pulled inextricably towards a void. Um, uh, Another person who wrote about, another analyst who wrote about this, this black hole experience, Eschel, in 1990. Eight, describes patients who are either trapped in a world of maternal deadness or feared fear being pulled into that deadness rather than having a psychological space of deadness within a void where a mother should be such people are either trapped in a maternal black hole or terrified of being drawn into that deadness and that results in deficits in relatedness so I propose that one solution to this impossible dilemma in a, is a, this, this dilemma is a Scylla or Charybdis choice in which both alternatives are equally destructive is to avoid connection with people. Um, if you read the Odyssey or you remember the Odyssey, uh, Scylla and Charybdis were, as Odysseus was traveling down the river, on one side of the river was Scylla, which was a, a, like this creature with uh, five wolf heads that were, could just snap the heads off the sailors in the ship. And on the other side was a, um, a, a whirlpool that would just take the ship down and, and destroy everything in it. And the choice was, well, there was, no, there was no middle ground. It was either one or the other. So Scylla and Charybdis, is a, it means that you have I guess it's like between a rock or a hard place, right? You have no good choices. It's either, you know, option A, which is bad, or option B, which is bad, just different. And so when you have option A, feel the deadness within, or option B, be pulled into that sense of deadness in relationship, the answer is to avoid connection and withdraw Unable to create bonds of closeness, love, and intimacy with others, people who choose this instead have a primary relationship with food, which functions as a symbolic representation of mothering and nurturing. Why does it symbolize mothering and nurturing? Because our very first connection um, with people, our very first bond is fused with the, the notion of feeding. When we're infants and we're being fed, we're held. We're held in, in, in a parent's arms. We feel safe. We feel close. We, we, we see their eyes look down at us and they're delighted and we know we exist and we know we make someone happy because we see that reflected in the gaze of the parents. That is if all goes well. And we feel cozy and warm and comfortable and safe and we're being fed. And so that sense of being fed gets connected with the sense of relationship, and that's why food represents people. So when you withdraw from people and instead have a relationship with food, you not only fill the emptiness within your body, you create a self-sustaining relationship. 
protecting yourself from the dangers of relating by having complete agency over food, which functions as, again, mother-parent-nurturer. Eating can also be a way of managing unpredictability. So people who have experienced trauma often create elaborate strategies to prevent re-experiencing that trauma or feeling the effects associated with those original traumatic events. And this is true for people who survived a single event trauma and for those who endured an ongoing and protracted period of neglect, abuse, indifference, or other psychological pain. Let me just make a comment about trauma because something that people tell me a lot is, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, like, yeah, my parents beat me, but I never had to go to the hospital. It wasn't that bad. Or they'll say like, yeah, my parents said horrible things to me, but they never beat me up. I mean, it's not like I had a broken body or bruises on my body. Like, it really wasn't that bad. Or 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 they'll just say, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. Yes, I was neglected, but my, my parents didn't mean to ne- neglect me. My mom didn't mean to. She just was so busy working two jobs and my dad bailed and she did the best she could, which of course is true. Yes, this is all true, but there are, but, and, and nonetheless, neglect was felt. So that's why it's not about blaming, it's about explaining. So there are two types of trauma. One is akin to just a really intense, horrible, bad, awful thing that happens and it's like a, butcher knife to your to your heart just just bam really bad just really 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 bad some super bad thing that happens that you could see is horribly destructive car accident you know some some single trauma that's that just leaves ripple effects for for years the other kind of trauma is a thousand small cuts And so people who have a thousand small cuts are those who say, well, it wasn't really trauma. But you know what? A thousand small cuts are just as painful as one butcher knife to your heart. They both cause incredible pain. So that's one thing to keep in mind when it comes to trauma. If you are affected by what happened to you, if it hurt, it needs your attention, not your dismissal. Um. Uh, Shapiro in 2012 noted that, quote, emotional and physiological destabilization is likely to occur repeatedly during trauma treatment as implicit trauma memories become conscious because trauma memory is experienced in the here and now rather than as narrative memory. So basically, you know how I say the past is in the present we're not talking about the past so much as we're talking about how either the past affects you or how the past is recreated or re-experienced in the present. And the whole point of psychoanalytic or psychodynamic treatment is to put the past in the past. Uh, as as one, um, one way to put it is, is right now you're being haunted by the past. The idea is to is to stop being haunted by the ghosts of the past because they're surrounding and they're always there. They're haunting you. They're there. They're with you now. And the idea is to make them ancestors instead of ghosts. 
Um, this is not my my idea to use this an, uh, ghost and ancestor idea. I am blanking out at the moment who said it. Um, but ancestors in there are in the ground. They don't haunt you. You go and you say, "Oh, you affected me," or you know, "I I get it." But you're in the ground. You're 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 gone. Ghosts are here, and so turning ghosts into ancestors is the way to go. I have noticed how many survivors of emotional and or physical trauma consciously believe that any positive, pleasurable, or good experiences are a setup for future disappointment. They avoid stepping into the metaphorical rug of happiness, or they do so cautiously, fearing that as soon as they are happy on that rug of life, it will be unceremoniously yanked out from beneath them. Inevitably, something bad happens, and then they ruefully point out the last good thing that happened, creating a pattern between the two events as if somehow things have gotten too good, and therefore it couldn't last. They perceive a causal relationship between positive and negative events and circumstances, and then find the evidence to support this causality. And of course, we find the evidence we look for. Um, I had a friend who who converted from um, basically being a reform Jew to being a an extremely ultra-Orthodox Jew. I mean, she went from like wearing a thong leotard with tights, you know, to, to classes, <laughs> and then going to Ralph's in that thong leotard and tights, like, to go went shopping in that getup, which I was always like, you cannot go in public like that. Um, to becoming an or- Orthodox Jew, covering herself up, moving to Israel, the whole bit. And so one day she tells me that that actually, and this was so offensive, I can't even begin to tell you how offensive this was. She told me that Reform Judaism was the cause for the Holocaust. I said, "What? Say what?" Like, you know, really, I I want to be like, what? How did she explain this? How does she explain this causality? She said, well, in the 1800s, Reform Judaism started, and then the Holocaust happened 80 years later. See, a true cause and effect. In her mind, 80, (laughs) in her mind, that was causality. And nothing I could say could change her mind. Nothing I could say about Hitler or the the the, the you know post World War One environment that led to a political and economic situation that led people to want to blame an other and there were the Jews and blah 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 no 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 it was the Jews' own fault for for uh, becoming Reform Jews rather than Orthodox. Now how she explained all the Catholics and gay people who also died in the Holocaust, I don't know, but that is just the most egregious form of hey, I'm going to perceive a causality where there is none. And so that's why you say, oh, uh, bad things happen in threes or good things happen in threes. You're going to say, well, it was, here's the, here are the three good things. Here are the three bad things because you believe it. And then you'll find a reason to sustain the belief. Um, and so when people think, hey, if your life gets too good, something bad is going to happen well, there's always a very handy bad around, which is, oh, look, I was, I was so bad, I ate that. I ate that box of cookies or pizza or whatever, or I gained weight, and now I'm not happy anymore. 
And that's like, oh, phew, nothing bad can happen to me because I'm not happy. Uh, One patient was devastated when she was fired from her corporate job, which occurred shortly after the company where she worked was acquired by a bigger corporation. She tearfully phoned her mother, but was met with a less than comforting response. Her mother wasn't surprised by this turn of events, telling my patient that she had, quote, climbed so far up in the world, unquote, that she was bound to fall sooner or later. Like Icarus, by daring to, so- to soar higher, my patient was left with the notion that she had brought her job termination upon herself, and she had only herself to blame for doing so well. How about that? She turned to food to get the comfort she could not get from her mother or from herself, as she had not yet cultivated a different response from herself. Again, often we treat ourselves as we have been treated. And so with a mom like that who says, well, it's your own fault. You know, you, you did so well. It was bound to happen sooner or later. How, how, how could my patient have ever cultivated an ability to be responsive and kind to herself up to that point? And here's where therapy comes in, by the way. Because she can learn a new way because she's getting a different response from me. And often patients will tell me, oh my God, your voice is in my head. You know, and and that's good. If if my voice is the only comforting, loving, interested voice there is, caring voice, responsive voice, then they can they have something other than the judgmental, critical voice, or in many cases, the absence of anything. And therapy is about not just understanding what's going on, but having a different experience with another person that you could take in and make use of and start relating to yourself differently. So basically, when it comes to eating as a way of managing unpredictability, the fear is that if you dare to step inside paradise, it will eventually be unpredictably taken away. The expectation of good leading to bad creates a compelling reason to be pessimistic or suspicious of anything good. And this is a way of perpetuating an illusion of omniscience and omnipotence. Since if you know that bad follows good, you can therefore avoid anything unpleasant or disappointing. And one solution is to never allow life to feel too good. Since an effective way to control the potential loss of well-being is to make sure you never enter paradise in the first place. As long as you don't enter paradise, you cannot be cast out from paradise. There is no paradise lost if you never step inside. Strategies to prevent the experience of well-being that will, in people's minds, some people's minds, precede a fall including feeling terrible about your body, bemoaning your relationship to food, generally feeling terrible about yourself is a way of keeping yourself from being fully into paradise. This also creates a parallel experience of shame that can be temporarily assuaged with food, creating a vicious cycle of seeking happiness, seeking comfort, and fearing the loss of happiness and using food in such a way as to destroy any sense of well-being or self-esteem. Here's an example. Greg, uh, who's 48 years old, 
owned a successful contracting business and built expensive houses in the most coveted neighborhoods of the L.A. area. His marriage was strong. His three kids were doing great in school. They were socially well-adjusted. Everything was going well. And yet the more successful he became, the more Greg focused on his problem with food, as he put it. And when he landed a huge contract for a Bel Air estate, something like $25 million house, huge contract, his thoughts soon turned to his inability to control his weight. So, you know, he tells me, I got, the, and, he, and he tells me, like, like you'd think if you, if you had just got a contract for a $25 million Bel Air mansion, you'd be like, I just got a $25 million contract. Oh my God, this is amazing. I'm so excited. No, it was more like, I got the contract for the $25 million Bel Air mansion. Like, he was not happy about it. And his thoughts then was, turned to, oh my God, and I, I went out to celebrate and look what I ate. Greg responded to all positive events in his life by bemoaning his weight and helplessness over food, especially pasta. His maternal grandmother was Italian and made homemade pasta every Friday night. And he recalled going to a friend's house for a sleepover as a child where he was served, to his horror, spaghetti with ketchup. The memory of this dinner made him visibly shudder and he was aghast at it. Greg realized how lucky he was to have his grandmother's cooking, which until then he'd taken for granted as a kid, but which then took on more significance and pleasure. Greg recalled an idyllic childhood, one he described as absolutely perfect until he was 10 years old when everything changed in what seemed like an instant. One moment life was good and he was celebrating the fact that his soccer team had won a match. The next moment, or so it seemed, his parents were sitting him down with sober expressions and announcing their plans to divorce. Greg's life turned upside down in that instant. Greg felt himself suddenly and unwillingly cast from his perfect life. Now, Greg was an active child and played sports throughout his childhood and into college. He married, married his college girlfriend, and they had a loving, strong relationship. His wife stayed at home and raised the boys while, while he built a lucrative business. He hired his father, who was also a contractor, but had never achieved Greg's level of success. When Greg's oldest son was 10 years old, Greg began overeating on a regular basis. He developed a habit of ordering pasta for lunch, along with bread and dessert, gained weight for the first time in his life. He described feeling as if he was an addict and could not stop thinking about eating Italian food every day. He quickly gained 30 pounds and was unable to lose it. Greg was more financially successful than his father, yet the weight gain did not appear to be related to, you know, guilt over you know, being more successful than his father. Because sometimes people have ambivalence about being more successful than their parents. On the one hand, it's, ha, I'm more successful than my parents, or my parents are proud of me. And on the other hand, it's, oh, but, you know, maybe my parents will be jealous of me. Greg started gaining weight when his son was 10 years old, the same age Greg had been when his parents announced their divorce. As a result of that seminal incident, 
he unconsciously developed a belief that happiness and success invariably lead to loss. So when his son reached the age of 10, all his sort of repressed and unconscious fears about being cast from paradise, bad things happening, were reactivated during what might be thought of as an anniversary effect. Greg began fearing that things were too good to be true. It can't last. So his son turns 10 and he re-experiences his trauma of age 10. One way of ensuring that he never felt too happy was to always feel upset about his weight. And as we worked through this underlying belief about happiness couldn't be his for long, he slowly began feeling more secure about his situation. And his fixation with Italian food, which he associated with, with childhood evenings with his Italian grandmother, slowly began to fade. He was eventually able to reach a healthy weight and his relationship to food normalized. Um, so although it is clear that there is little scientific basis for food addiction, um, if you missed my first, the first part of this uh, two-part audiobook series, uh, I explain all of that in part one. Uh, although it is clear that there is little scientific basis for food addiction, many people are addicted to using food to alleviate distress or to express unconscious hidden conflict. They often lack alternate means of self-soothing or comforting themselves and have little ability to reflect about why they're eating. Remember, it is not what you're eating that's the problem. It's what's eating at you. Also, when there's a fundamental distrust of relationships, it's often difficult to trust that a therapist will remain interested, attuned, and responsive. And therefore, like a really crucial aspect of therapy is to focus on um, the patient's experience to find meaning in the eating behavior rather than attempting to change that behavior. And I hear from many people whose relationships with previous therapists devolved into power struggles, by the way. I mean, one person spent, you know, 20 years in a power struggle with a, a therapist who was trying to, you know, get her to change her behavior, and she just wasn't going to give in. No way. Uh, when the therapist tried to get them to eat differently, people resist. And patients themselves are perplexed often by this resistance. They wonder why they will not change. They will not change something that they actively and consciously wish to change. So I ask them to think of their quote-unquote addiction to food as a kind of frenemy as eating, binge eating, stress eating, any kind of emotional eating does something for you. It functions as a friend and it also hurts you, which makes it simultaneously an enemy. I tell people I have no wish to take their eating disorder away from them or to force them to change their relationship to food. Instead, I say, look, I want to help you better understand your relationship to food. So one day, you can voluntarily give up this disordered, problematic eating. And for some people, th this experience of the analytic relationship is the first time they're able to rely on someone else's mind, unconditional interest, and genuine regard for them. And when you internalize the goodness of the analyst, you're able to give up those 
negative, bad associations and learn to, when you're comforted, you can learn to comfort yourself instead of using food for that purpose. So through the process of psychoanalysis, we discover why someone uses food to cope. Eating may provide a means of self-soothing. It can fill a symbolic void. It can allow for dissociation. That is, by the way, that food coma many people uh, report. Like, when I'm eating, I'm not feeling anything. I'm not thinking anything. It's the only time I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of having an out-of-body experience, and I'm like autopilot. That's what a lot of people tell me. That's a dissociation. They can, you can, it provides a way to convert emotional pain to physical pain. Oh, I ate so much, my stomach hurts. It's a way of creating a symbolic reunion with um, important people, right? Like Jane, who is going to unite with her par- her mother by gaining 135 pounds and carrying her mother with her. And it provides a sense of mastery over an unpredictable world, even though you're simultaneously spontaneously feeling out of control with food. So the key to healing from food issues is to identify what the behavior is expressing and to work through those original psychological wounds by understanding how the past is repeated in the present and translating the language of the body. We shed light on the hidden motivations that keep the, this symptomatic behavior in place. When people identify and work through what is eating at them, they stop using food or their bodies as a means of expressing their inner world. And that is the end of my chapter called Food Addiction. Um, And again, this is from my new book, Beyond the Primal Addiction, in which people, uh, we have chapters on food, sex, gambling, internet, shopping, and work. Uh, I was so proud to be part of this book and to have the um, uh, contribute contribute contributions. Ooh, can't talk. Have the contributions of so many really great thinkers um, who did the chapters on on sex, gambling, internet, and shopping. And Salman Akhtar did work. Really, it is a very powerful book, and it illustrates how uh, the way that we think of addiction really needs to be changed. Addiction is uh, uh, often looked at as uh, let's get ri- let's get rid of the weed instead of let's get rid of the root. And if you're interested in getting the book, it, you can look for it on Amazon, Beyond the Primal Addiction, edited by me and Dr. Salman Akhtar. Uh, that will do it for today. I will be back in, um, in a week, back live with a guest who I think you're really going to like. So tune in then. And in the meantime, stay curious, not critical, be kind to yourself, and think about why you're eating, not what you're eating, and cultivate just a kindness towards yourself so that you can comfort yourself with words instead of using food. Comfort words instead of comfort food. Bye for now. You're listening to The Dr. Nina Show with Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, only on LA Talk Radio.